All right. So welcome back to uh, another episode of uh, Bel- of uh, woo, Empire. Sorry, guys. Um, Wait, what? Let me. <laughs> I, was, I was just Jesus Christ. I was just talking to Mike about bell curve. I'm sorry. It's a this is what happens. A long week, Monty. Your 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 love for you do a couple of podcasts. I'm just you know I'm in a single relationship here with Empire. No, no, no. You don't know this. Mike kicked me out of bell curve. Oh, okay. Mike, Mike, uh, Mike. I did season one and season two with Mike of bell curve. He just booted me. So season three is all about app chains on bell curve. People should should check it out. It's good, yeah. but. I got kicked out as the host. <laughs> Mike put in a guy from Reverend. Yeah, we, we we've got. had a trend in the last episode, and we're going to talk about in this episode about founders and what they go through because you and I have talked to a lot of founders and what they're going under through. fights. Mike and I are in a big <laughs> founder like fight. Like there's right some now. issues there that you guys need to resolve. <laughs> Kick me out. <laughs> yeah, we got it exactly. So welcome back. Welcome back folks. to Empire. You got the roundup and uh, Santi. I see you rocking Nike today. I'm curious what you think of this Nike Tiffany collab. Absolute fire. Saw a picture of LeBron wearing this jacket too. Just man, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I would that I love. You know, because historically, like a lot of the NFT projects, would you spend, would you spend one ETH? Uh, or I guess it's point. What did ETH at today? Uh, no, it, would you spend? That's one ETH, right? Well, what are the, the these? You you were saying these these secondary market for these shoes is going what four K? Four K. The Nike SB Dunk Low Diamond Supplies. Or ETH is at sixteen hundred because right? you know J Pow. Hike twenty five basis points. Market loves yep. it. We're ripping. ETH is at sixteen two and a half ETH on uh, on these shoes. <sighs> I mean, I use dirty fiat, but uh, uh, I I hate to say it, but I I and I'm going to get a lot of shit for it, but I probably will drop on on this <laughs> just just because. Hear me out. Just because I I, I, I don't hate just it. because I think these are two brands that are moving and aggressively and with a purpose and a mission in in crypto. And I think I respect that. And so I'm also a huge, uh, I love Nike. Uh, and I, I run a lot, as people know, and I love Nike as a brand and I, I'm very loyal. Uh, so if anyone out there, Nike, who heads up their NFT Web3 department and wants to come on the show, talk, I mean, it'll be the easiest interview you'll ever do. You know, it's funny. Did you see, you, uh, you saw LeBron walking through the tunnel. I feel like the the NBA tunnel has become like, it's the new, uh, like, uh, it's like, it's runway. like, that's where fashion is made. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, it's the new runway. Like that's where the, the NBA tunnel is where fashion is made today. And so they kill, I think they killed it. You know, you had, uh, who's the CEO of Tiffany, like Arnaud, mm-hmm. the, the son, the son or whatever. I forget his name. Yeah. The young, the young guy, like he was sitting at MSG rocking the shoes. You had LeBron walk out with the leather mm-hmm. jacket and the shoes. Like, you know, I think like historically I got asked this question in an interview once it's like, if you could just own one stock for the next 50 years, which one would it be and why? Or the next 20 years, like really long term. And I picked LVMH because I think they're like humans always want to differentiate. And this is part of my thesis with NFTs too, right? Which is like digital identity and ownership. Like humans love to differentiate. And so I really love, I mean, they, they've done a fantastic job. The stock, how LVMH has expanded into so many different brands, hospitality, they own like luxury hotels now, Cheval Blanc's like, they they are just impressive uh, in their acquisition strategy and the, and now obviously with in trying to be relevant across all their brands like they're all over like F one with tech uh, sponsoring Red Bull um, into NFTs like and like it's actually impressive to see because they're like you talk about the innovators dilemma they have they're sitting in a very comfortable position but they also they also put themselves in an uncomfortable position, meaning they know that they need to reinvent themselves in the next 20 years. They need to appeal to a younger generation. And it's super impressive to see how these guys yeah. really are like moving um, into Web3. 
I think it's awesome. So LVMH, they are one of the, I think Bernard Arnault is the richest rich. guy in the world or top. I think five. he is now, now that uh, Elon I think he's is the richest person in the world, but L- LVMH owns Tiffany, Christian, Christian Dior, Fendi, uh, Mark Jacobs, yeah. um, uh, Laura Piana, uh, Celine, mm-hmm. um, tag. I think they yeah. own, uh, they own a bunch of alcohol as well. Yeah, yeah. Me... Moet, Chenise, I, I think they own. I'm not sure of Moet, but nonetheless, like they own across the luxury category. They own Dom. Yeah, they dominate. Uh, Vouve, um, Hennessy. Uh, so, like, anyways, huge. Like, they've got basically like these massive brands in like spirits, fashion, cosmetics, watches, jewelry, and uh, so Bernard Arnault put in place his son. Uh, I think his name is Alexander. Mm-hmm. It's like 30 years old, pretty young, to run Tiffany. And Alexander's super into NFTs. Yeah, he's rocking um, like, like a crypto punk yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, so um. yeah, they uh, there's a fascinating story. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes of like how they bought. Can you get him on? Like you know, punk pings, punk punk ping, yeah, yeah. punk, and like get him on. Yeah, well, I'll try. I'll re- I don't have direct contact. I've never <laughs> talked to him, but yeah, definitely. Like, uh, there's a great story of how they like have done a huge turnaround and like reinvented Dior as a house like i don't particularly love the brand but like i respect like they've just done an incredible turnaround and they're really good at acquisitions turnarounds just growth and like it's just super impressive um yeah so yeah nonetheless this this yeah. this nike stuff is um, pretty interesting though like uh, how 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 does one buy you were telling me this but like like what's a what do you think is a long-term vision of your nike if you're tiffany these collabs, but also just thinking broadly of like NFTs, are they going to use that to like give like their loyal members access? Cause like today, for instance, Nike like launched some new sneakers, running sneakers. And because I'm a member and been a member for a long time, I was like, I got early access. Uh, are they going to use yeah. NFTs as like gateways to like, here, 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 here's what I'd say. Like NFTs or no NFTs. There is one thing on the mind of every brand in, in, in the world right now. How do I plug in to the cultural zeitgeist and specifically like maybe making that more tangible? How do I get my brand to survive as this new cohort of people age, you know, 12 to 22, they come into all the wealth, younger and younger people are making more and more money as they move their li- as their lives become digital, they spend all their money in, in a digital world. And, you know, the first person I saw do this really, really well was John Malone, right? So John Malone, Liberty, one of the largest landowners in in in, uh, in America, I think it's like I think he might be the large largest landowner in America behind um, Bill Gates. We might have talked about this mm-hmm. already, but uh, landowner in America, and he you know he's very famous for doing all these media roll ups in the '80s. He basically identified Formula One yeah, as crazy. this like kind of crusty older brand that you know had the same sponsors, like same demographics, but their demographics were getting really old, and their demographics were eventually going to die out. So he acquired them, and what did he do? He uh, linked up with Netflix and basically did a content marketing play. So some people think of content marketing as like, oh, we're going to create a blog or we're going to launch a, a brand podcast. What, what Formula One did, led by John Malone, is he said, no, we're going to actually create a show. And that's how Drive to Survive on Netflix came to be. And I think what you see Tiffany doing right now is, you know, that you don't think of, I think, Tiffany, which is like a 150-year-old brand, as doing these big mass market, as even doing partnerships in general. But what's super obvious is, that their partnership with Nike is their attempt to basically move into a mass, become this mass market brand, but really become a brand that like engages with like a broad group of young consumers. Mm -hmm. And like, I think every brand today is like, how do I breathe life into my brand so that young consumers 
see me as a as a as a brand that kind of gets mm-hmm. it. So that that's I think what's on the top top of mind for a lot of brands. Right, well, let me ask you a question. So if you buy these sneakers, it's super slick, like black with like the the Tiffany uh, color, which is like uh, like a mint color. Would you, if you buy the sneakers, what would you ascribe more value to, the sneaker or the NFT? If you have like a an NFT that represents the physical item. For the so it's funny so like I would never because you're not the question is are you gonna wear them I have I have one I have one pair of like collector sneakers okay and you know what I've done with them no I have kept them in the box in my closet and I have never worn those things. so funny you so say the that. value of them keeps going up yeah and so I'm like I'm not gonna scuff these the question things. is are you gonna sell them at some point this is the conundrum I mean, that I, have. I don't know no I won't because like they're uh they're uh I've got. They're, they're a piece of history in my mind. Right. And like, they're, uh, they're these big questions. But I do get anxiety because it will depreciate. It will deteriorate, right? Are you, are you keeping them in good conditions? Like, you move places. Like, accumulating physical stuff yeah. gives me some anxiety. I love collecting certain stuff. But I do think about that a lot, whereas digital is great. Like, I love Legos, for instance. I have my – in my parents' house that I spent the full, like, month, you know, true to crypto bear market, mini bear market that we had. I was actually living in my parents' uh, attic. Uh, which is my room, uh, and I have yeah. it's all Legos, Luxurious. and I, but I don't build them because I yeah. I think that they're like I just there are certain pieces that I just don't want to build, but I also historically have never sold anything that I've collected. I've only sold one NFT actually, which was an NFT island like rare thing that the team gifted me, and I said I'm not going to sell it, but there was someone who wanted it, so like I ended up selling it. Yeah. Um. So in this case, you're right. Like I don't think like this particular sneaker. I'm not going to like wear it. Here, here's what I would do. I would do what I did with all NFTs. When the NFT market was booming, I'd buy two. But I always, what I did with most NFTs is like, you buy two NFTs. You, when the price goes up a lot and you're like, I want to sell, I want to sell, go ahead, sell it. But then you can still hold on to one. That's, really, that's a good like, idea. So like uh, crypto dick think, butts, which I know that you're a big fan of. We had a great episode with Meltem. You talked about that a lot. <laughs> I do have one or a few actually. <laughs> How many do you have? I, I actually own this. The year, I, I'm just I, calling I you out because I know one. that you have more than two, right? No, I actually only have oh. one. Uh, but yeah, but I was I was just shopping the other day, so I'm I, I've got I've got my eyes on one that's like okay, it's a beauty, okay. and I'm gonna probably pull trigger on the second. This one, is a but, this is a good um, like a yeah. framework. Buy two, and then you get rid of one. Yeah, yeah. So nice. Um, what should we talk about today? There's not much news. This Surprisingly, putting together yeah. uh, the news stuff with our producer, shout out Garrett, and Garrett's uh, great. It's like the least crypto news I've I've ever seen. It's interesting because the market so. it's it's one of those times where like there have been weeks where we have so many news and the market does nothing. It's choppy. It's a crap market. Now the market's ripping because Jay Powell did us all a favor. Uh, is it really priced in? Uh, but then it's not, you know. Uh, and so. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there have been some news on the side, NFT wise, some like soft rugs by Rally, I guess, and a few things here and there. The we can talk about the this. I mean, the Celsius like four hundred page dot like dossier, like whatever, like report had so much stuff in there that it's like you read. There's a great thread in there. Like you, all you have to do is like read like five pages. And you're like, this is this is sickening. Um, and so yeah, there's some stuff Celsius, out there. Here's my one-liners that celsius is royally screwing over their users by what's going on but i feel like i can't say more right now and well it yeah, has historically you know week. right they were 
yeah. using customer funds to well, buy Celsius, Celsius while here, here, he found here, Alex Mashinsky was selling his own personal stake, like up to 40 million or so. Here, here's what I'd say, Santi, is um, there's no leadership. There's no, I think that if Celsius leadership was still in place, they would actually do the right thing. And they'd be like, let's sell this business. And, um, you know, let, or let, 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 like, let's, let's take care of the users. There's no Celsius leadership left over. It's basically just the bankers and the lawyers running this thing. And I don't know what's going to happen with Celsius, but I can assure you when lawyers and bankers are in charge, uh, the users will not be taken care no. of. This will extend out as long as humanly possible because yeah. they're raking in. Yeah, I mean, uh, lawyers um, in the Enron case made over a billion dollars. <laughs> or yeah. the restructuring uh, Same with Madoff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same with Madoff. Um, I have something I want to talk about, actually. Okay. So la last week on the Roundup, we talked a lot. I had those three calls with founders. And I want, and I talked about that. Mm. I actually had similar calls with um, different venture firms in crypto this week, and uh, it, they were kind of. They, it made me realize that, like, I think that we've probably hit a bottom in crypto markets, like the public market side of crypto. I think you know we've probably seen a bottom in, in Bitcoin and ETH. Mm. I have a feeling we'll we'll get back down to those lows at some point again this year, but we've probably seen a bottom. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot more pain to come. Mm. And what I mean by that is like some of these calls with the venture firms, they're talking about their portfolio companies and they're like, look, we have some port codes we love. Like we are all in on these port codes where they're going to raise again. We're going to back them. They're going to raise it, you know, probably a lower value, a lower valuation or like a flat round. But that's OK. We'll, we'll double down on them. But a lot of a lot of these funds have companies who are not doing super well. And they're not going to be able to, and, and the funds I talk to are not going to back them yeah. again. And what happens then, the dynamic that occurs there is when you have a company who's all the VCs who have invested in them already are not willing to back them again, there's no way they can raise another round mm -hmm. um, from outside investors because that's a huge red flag. Or if they can raise, it's going to be at like a you know 90% down round, which just kills the ESOPs, of, uh, yeah. which then kills the employee morale. And it just, you know, if, if you have a high liquidation preference, it means the founder might never make any money again. No. So it's a pretty high likelihood that you're going to see a lot of companies, I think, in the like five to 20 person range. A lot of those companies are just going to quietly shut yeah. down later this year. And it won't be like public pain, but it there's 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 more pain. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I want to comment a few things. One, I think public public markets are faster to respond. Private markets, you know, Valuations took a bit of time to to go down, whereas the public market was much faster, right? Um, a lot of these deals got announced later. Like I'm announced, I announced two deals this week that I participated in. These were like, you know, we closed like a month or two ago, um, so there's a bit of a delay. Um, I also think you're right in the sense that the problem with crypto, like in bull market, I always caution founders, which is. Even if you can raise a huge round at a huge markup, like few, like some of these deals were like a month later, another fund would have come in and like offered them like way more money at a, a huge markup. And you know, the it's great. Like sometimes you take the money and, and it's an insurance policy. But what you just said about like the morale of a company, when you do a down round, it is very, very difficult for a lot of employees and retention. And it sucks to do a down round. And so, the hope is that sometimes these these rounds were not large in capital, but huge in valuation. And so it's a really tricky position for a lot of these companies that have hired too aggressively, had had to cut down and are probably going to have to do a down round. The, sec the, yeah. the third and last thing I want to comment on is I'll be really interested to talk about this just in general, which is the, the, the kind of 
the rationale psychology that goes on in, in an investment committee in crypto, which is crypto historically has been a market that has really fast evolving narratives and people love to chase new narratives. It's all about what's the next new narrative, you know? And so if you're sitting in committee, you have a portfolio of companies, you have a, say a $50 million fund, you've already deployed half of it in, you know, a couple of companies. Would you rather back and do another round of those companies might've been like an area that's not really in favor now, or were you going to back the new companies with a new hot narrative, zero knowledge proofs, yada, 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 slap, whatever your next nice, you know, uh, term is. And I'm not sure. I think a lot of funds are not very sophisticated and are just going to like chase some narratives <laughs> and are going to, because they might think that that's like going to be what, what like gets them out of being underwater. I'd be curious if you agree with that. Like, I think some funds are more disciplined, but like the cohort of funds in crypto is very diverse and some are more professional than others. The reason I, the only pushback there would be that like, there are a lot of funds who are running out of money oh, right now in terms of like they, they raised, you know, let's say, let's say you raised in like summer of 2021, you're almost two, you're almost like two years since you've raised or like you're, you're, you're at least a year and a half since you raised. And so now you're starting to think about raising your next fund, but you need to stay as a, as a venture. And I mean, you, you know, this from your time at Parify and even just as an angel investor, like one of your jobs is being in the narrative and being in the, you have to build a brand as a venture investor. You have to get in the deals. You have to like, people have to know you, you have to go on the podcast, you have to do your tweet threads and your medium articles and things like that. And if you run out of money too early in a cycle, you, people will forget about you. Mm -hmm. A, people will forget about you, but B, you'll miss a lot of the, the, the great opportunities that'll happen later this year. So I think actually I am seeing a lot of venture firms be really conservative right now because maybe they raised 150 million. They only have like 20 million left to deploy. And so they're being super conservative because they, before they can raise that next fund, they, you know, they don't, you, you never want to be fully out of money essentially as a, as a venture. Yeah. Firm. It's interesting to say that. So uh, you remember Katie Hahn, former, a16Z partner, she like was a prosecutor of the Silk Road and then was in the Coinbase board. She raised, left A16Z and raised 1.5 billion, at least committed. I don't know how much she's called. Venture funds, strictly venture. I'm not sure how much they hold in public mm -hmm. tokens. Um, they just announced a deal actually this week, which is why I bring this up. Because I saw her on CNBC basically saying, look, we're in no rush to deploy this capital. We think that we're going to see lower valuations. And this was like two months ago, three months ago. So, you know, we're kind of in, like bottoming out. Um, and now they, they're now redeploying. They did like a, I think it was a $7 million uh, Series A or so. And so it's interesting that these funds are now, you know, I think she ha a fund like that has plenty of capital to deploy. You know, it's yeah. really, you know, because there, there was a few funds that raised like last year, uh, that have decent amount of capital. The question that I, I've been consistently seeing from people that wonder is how much of that capital is actually being called, meaning you can announce in venture is fairly common. And I'm an investor in a few venture funds, crypto, non-crypto. And so basically what it says is you commit say $10 and they'll say, we're going to call up to half of that, no more than half usually. And so you, you basically shell out five, five bucks. And then the other five, 
in this case, they're going to call over some time horizon, usually two years while they'll deploy, or maybe up to five. Um, it's and a lot of people say, "Hey, how much of there's actually this this idea of there's so much dry powder in crypto?" A lot of and just generally in markets, in private equity, in venture, in crypto, um, and some people are wondering how much of that is actually going to be there to deploy. My understanding is, if you look at these subscription agreements, they are very like it's pretty hard to back out. If you made this commitment and they call capital, it's pretty tough to back out. Um, and so I, what I'm trying to say is I would think that I would probably haircut conservatively like up to 25% of that like aggregate number. So if Katie Hahn, you know, Kate Hahn Ventures had one and a half billion committed to them and they called, call it 400 million in their first like close or whatever, the rest of that, I think, reasonably speaking, she's going to have like probably like over a billion to deploy. And maybe there's like one or two LPs that yeah. drop, but the large, the really large LPs, I think, will not drop because it's one of the more important questions that you get asked when you, when you invest in these funds is when you do like the subscription questionnaire is what percentage of the assets of whatever vehicle is investing through or your personal assets. I think it's if you're investing through a corporation, which most people do anyways, what percentage of the assets are committed to, to this opportunity? And I think there is, it needs to be below a certain threshold. Like if it's just like a hundred percent or 80%, like you get asked more questions. Um, but a lot of these large LPs, you know, it's, it's a frat, it's a very small percentage of their allocation. When we think about like large institutions allocating 1% of their capital, pension funds, CalPERS of the world, you know, uh, it's a relatively small number for them. Hey everyone, quick break from Empire to tell you about another BlockWorks channel that I know you're gonna love. I've been in crypto full-time for five years and have always struggled with one thing, which is keeping up with the next big trend. As soon as I wrap my head around MEV, we're on to AppChains. As soon as I wrap my head around AppChains, we're on to liquid staking derivatives. I'm sure you've been there. BlockWorks research has solved that problem for me. Our team puts research, data, governance, proposal updates, models, and more into one really easy to use platform so I can always stay ahead of the curve. If I don't understand something, for example, I just pull up the platform, I can search for an L1, I can search for a protocol, pull up the platform at blockworksresearch.com, I search the term, there's always an amazing amount of insight in a really consumable way. Uh, right now you can subscribe to the platform, it's 2,500 bucks a year, or 900 bucks a quarter. Hopefully you can uh, make more than $208 a month by using the platform. If you can't, you're probably in the wrong business. But if you're not ready to subscribe to the platform today, you can subscribe to the research team's free newsletter. Uh, you can follow their Twitter handles today. Links in the show notes. Trust me, once you do that, you're gonna wanna subscribe to the platform. If you are ready to, uh, to subscribe right now, I got you guys with a little hookup. Empire listeners get a 10% discount for the first 50 people who use the code EMPIRE10. Got your back. Check out the links in the, sh in the description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think that brings up a good point. So even though you're con contractually ob ob obligated to send this money, like if you're a, a pension and you committed 10 million, you're contractually obligated to send the 10 million to the fund when they call it. There's a 
there's a I think there's a dynamic too. So actually, it was Vance from Framework who who mentioned this to me, which is, I think is a good point. Which is, if you're running a fund, you have two roles. You are an investor, which is finding good deals and and investing in the right things. But you're also, and that's what people think of as like a VC. But then you're also a fund manager, oh, yeah. which is like <laughs> running the fund and like managing relationships with the LPs and like when shit is hitting the fan, yeah, like yeah. calming your LPs down. And so there's this element of like, yes, the pension told you they'd give you 10 million. You called five of it on day one. Now you're going back to them at the absolute bottoms saying, hey, super opportunity. We're being super opportunistic, really exciting time to buy. And if you are not a good fund manager and you have not managed those relationships in the right way, even though they're obligated to send you that money, if I'm a pension and I don't trust you, I'm like, okay, I know I, I know I'm obligated to send you this money, but like, I don't love that you're buying into crypto at these at these prices. And so but, I think there's like some I would assume there are some fund managers who like are better at, yeah, at yeah, that absolutely. element of the game than others. I mean, this is a I really enjoyed my time with Parify, and I think this was a good dynamic that we had. Uh, who who seated Parify? Was it was it KKR? Do I remember? That? It was Henry Kravis personally. So Henry Kravis is one of the three founders of with KKR. Te, with 10 million? Do I remember that? I don't have the full details. I don't think it, there's a Bloomberg. This is all public record. A Bloomberg article that referenced Henry Kravis was uh, an anchor investor because, you know, Henry carries a lot of weight. Ben used to be um, uh, at KKR. And so, and Bain Capital Ventures was a big part of that too. So that made a huge splash, obviously. Um, someone like Henry, who basically invented an asset class, which is private equity, did one of the first buyouts. Uh, KKR is one of the best, if not the best private equity firm out there. Uh, someone like that, who kind of was a big part of the invention of an asset class called private equity, um, discover and believe in crypto as an, as an asset class, maybe didn't fully appreciate the technology, but you know, as an asset class, like that was a huge validation. I think that article, Bloomberg article kept like, it's still probably like really popular and getting a lot of hits. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, at, at Parify, like Ben was great at that. And I had the liberty and, and luxury of just focusing more on the investing side. But it's a big part. Like, uh, I, it's not to yeah. say that I don't enjoy it. I'd much rather have more time just to think about like investing. But it is a big part of, and it's very time consuming, especially because crypto is such a volatile asset class. You know, people, when you're doing great, it's like, it's like, go watch the big short. I think they really summarize what running a fund is like right because michael burry by the way it's interesting because michael burry now deleted his account because he was telling people to short the market yesterday You're yeah sure. like one two it's a sell he, he deletes he his account time. every time he gets a bad call like this guy's like he's volatile like like we're all kind of eccentric in some way but you know he very much visibly like shows that shows his hand but the big short really kind of gives you an inside scoop into what running a fund is right he, he was like you know, a lot of his investors like were like trying to sue him, and uh, one of the lead investors was calling him all the time. Lawrence, I think, is the name of his name. Like this guy, Lawrence, his anchor investor, was like, "You're you're breaching all these clauses. Like you're you're like basically gonna run out of money. You're crazy for betting against housing. Like yada yada yada." And then of course, like did a huge windfall. So yeah, all this like no, no different than running, it's it's no really not like company, by the way I think. <laughs> Which is like, I, I don't know yeah. what the, I've had a lot of discussion. By the way, someone hit me up yesterday from another big fund and said, Oh, I heard there's a rumor that you're going to start a fund. And I'm like, like, no, I'll publicly say this. No. And all of this. And then I got to thinking like, you know, it has been, it's difficult 
to run a crypto farm. Like a lot of the, a lot of people, one, the community always liked to like vilify venture at different parts of the cycle. Um, and look, some venture funds are better than others. Some fund managers are really vocal and can polarize the community and others are not. But like sometimes there's a broad stroke of like, oh, this is a VC project and VCs are bad and they get, you know, what they don't see is that VCs also like grind out and really help founders, especially in tough times. Like you're basically like talking to founders all the time because you really need your help. And some funds or fund managers are, they don't want to talk to the analysts. They want to talk to you, right? I was spending yeah. half, more than half of my time just talking to the portfolio all the time on call. Like crypto is 24 7, 365. Like you get hit up on Sunday, you know. So I heard this from Kyle Samani, actually. I know Kyle gets a lot of shit out there from a lot of people. But one thing I think that he said is very true. He said, basically, when we make an investment, my criteria is can I drop everything if I'm on vacation and pick up the phone for this founder? Do I really want to work with him? To be fair, I think Multicoin as a fund has really helped some of their portfolio, like a lot of their portfolio companies. Like if you hear from founders- You argue Multicoin has helped more than more than pretty much any other fund out there. Multicoin has helped- I'll, I'll go on the record saying like Solana, like you may, better. they are very helpful. Helium. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You may not love the project. You may not love other things. I'm not asking you to, but I will, I, I do, I will give them credit yeah. because they are very helpful. So anyways, all this to say is running a crypto fund is really hard, folks. And so next time you criticize a lot of these funds, just wonder, like they, they do play a huge role. Like they're, they're investing in. I thought, I thought, I thought Chris Berniski had a good take, which is like everyone, everyone, the reason people criticize crypto venture funds is because like they get insider deals and like they're, you know, they're able to buy at these low prices as Chris put it on Twitter the other day, which is really well put for anyone, anyone criticizing, you've got the same opportunity right now. Public markets, <laughs> these tokens are down at the same prices that venture yeah. funds are getting them at. And so Go for it, pull the trigger, uh, well, but most people won't. Well, it brings so. me back to the initial statement you said, which is, you know, a lot of these projects have launched a token, they're trading below market, but also venture funds have a huge lockup. Like some of these rounds are being done where the community is, there's a huge allocation to the community and they're getting it at like roughly the same price as venture funds, sometimes with way better terms in terms of lockup. And so... You know, that's some of the things that don't get discussed, but like venture funds have to hold the bag for years, for years. And, yeah. and so, yeah, it's uh, a lot of, a lot of the new things that have been happening is when venture funds like Dragonfly and some of these funds like had to go and ask the community they can invest in like Lido, for instance, and convince the community to sell tokens from the treasury. And so, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, a bit of a, bit of a tangent here and. Uh, but I think it's an important topic to discuss, especially as in bear markets, yeah. venture funds do play a huge role. I think there's one other thing that people don't see. Um, if you haven't raised or if you haven't invested in some of these private rounds, which is I think the thing that hits the media that hits the like the headline is the valuation. X company raises this much at this valuation. What it what most of these deals is really about, though um are the terms on the term yeah. sheet right what are the liquidation preferences do you what do you have veto rights over mm -hmm. like those are those are things that are not in any story but oftentimes are, are much more important so like i saw something the other day it had a 3x liquidation preference there's no way that 
there's no way the founder of that company and the employees are going to make any money. And that's just a shame. But mm -hmm. on TechCrunch, it looks like it's a super successful yeah. reason, stuff like that. So this is very true. Not in crypto that much, actually. Like historically, these rounds have been very fairly founder friendly terms. Not but I do anymore. wonder if now that you have more professional yes. investors in crypto yes, yes. And, and the market's going down, like I think the yeah. liquidation preferences that I'm seeing right now are like, yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of the traditional funds that ventured into crypto did like the BlockFi, Celsius, uh, FTX. They basically were very soft on the terms in a raging bull market. No board seat. Yeah, no, no like, like no board seat. Yeah. Like I understand like one X liquidation preference is standard. Like three X is like you're basically in the worst bear market in the history of the world. Uh, but like no board seat is like shameful one of the things that i do want to observe is of the ftx stuff and i know that we don't want to touch too much on that but i think it will be really interesting to see the repercussions for venture funds that invested with some of which are being investigated of like did they actually uphold their fiduciary responsibility to do proper due diligence on the uh, on this company and companies in general some of these deals were like struck lightning round deals crazy valuations no terms <laughs> now the the when we talk about the the you know like lessons and the positives that come out of something like that as painful as it is is that i think a lot of vcs in crypto now are going back and being way more disciplined asking for a board seat let's talk about liquidation preference yeah. let's talk about information rights just standard MBCA, Natural Venture Capital Association, like terms that like apparently were not even in, in some of the more splashiest rounds. And this is true for traditional venture yeah. too. Like I remember looking at Uber's like pre-IPO rounds. They had a huge ratchet, liquidation preference, like basic, like it was very favorable for those investors. And so you're absolutely right. I think people should assume that you know, not everything is people just take the, the headline valuation, but there's a lot of stuff that goes that, 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 you know, goes into that number. Yeah. Anything else you want to cover? Uh, pretty, pretty slow news week. So I could be okay wrapping it here. We could also talk about rally or these Bitcoin NFTs, but I'll also be okay wrapping it here. So no, I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much about macro. The only thing I want to say is like, and I'll, I, I will keep saying this, as well, for the rest of the year, because it's an important thing to maybe just like, I'm, I say this publicly because I want to remind myself. I'm not sure if we're now in a full back up only mode. Prices have rallied quite a bit since the bottom. It's just still really, really important to correct the fundamental issues that persisted and like specific to crypto. Strip away all the macro noise. There are some fundamental things in crypto that need to be improved on. And let's not lose sight of those. Let's actually focus and make sure that we don't make the same mistakes as before. And this is, we just talked about FTX, board seats, you know, being more rigorous and diligence um, publicly, you know, calling out a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff, not like glorifying people just because, you know, just important to like remind ourselves of the things that we were talking about two months ago, even a month ago. Um, and and that should always kind of like, we should always learn about those mistakes. You know, Mike had, your your founder had a really good tweet yesterday, the day before, to like, you know, there's some really bad ideas in the last cycle. And I asked him, okay, what were the worst ideas that you saw? 
Because he said a lot of venture funds, back to this discussion, are going to like, you know, look back and, you know, a lot of these ideas were, were fairly dumb. And I'm actually really curious and I'll leave it, I'll leave it here. I don't have a perfect answer for this. And I'd love to hear people comment on, on YouTube and some of the other channels on Discord. It's like, what were actually those really dumb ideas that you consider? Because I think there are two camps, two, two categories of dumb ideas. One, which is too early because the infrastructure is not there. And a perfect example of that is CryptoKitties. You know, at the time, CryptoKitties congested the Ethereum network and people are saying, like, what is this stuff? People are saying it now about Bitcoin for other reasons. But like NFTs as a category in 2017 was deemed, discarded and said, this is really dumb. And then they reemerged two years later. And now here we are, right? Um, it's, it's very much here to stay and it's a very important piece of crypto as a vertical. That was a dumb idea that was just not ready for its time. The infrastructure was not there. There's other dumb ideas like recursive leverage and, you know, algorithmic stable coins, which actually I'm not fully sold on. I mean, what, I mean one of those ideas that I had, a, like, I think, I think there's a good lesson here, which is whenever you have like a, like a really bad emotional reaction to something, like I had this with NFTs when the NFT market was ripping. Like, do you remember when um, Beeple sold his thing? Uh, for like 75 million. Tens of million. 68 million. Yeah. And then, you know, like. Board Ape started ripping, Punk started ripping, like all the, I had a very like emotionally negative reaction to that. Yeah. And I was like, this makes no sense. This is so dumb. This is ridiculous. This is a huge bubble. And, uh, and I was wrong. And it took like months to come to, come to that realization. And honestly, like come to the acceptance. I this mean, this was it, like, it a, was a bubble. I remember this episode, bubble, it was like, like January or February of last year. And you were saying like, Mike and I have this like constant heated debate of like how high the NFT volume market and prices floors are going to go. We were both, and wrong. you were, we, you were we, like board like at God. twenty ETH, and then they ripped to like a hundred plus. <laughs> I, like I was, I was so like that was one of the most wrong I've been in crypto. Probably is like yeah. I had no idea these PFPs were going to be worth a yeah. million dollars each, and uh, you know, yeah, missed <laughs> missed that one. But but you were saying like so, so you had a very I, visceral reaction to that. But and what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah. And like when you have a visceral reaction to something, I think you should lean in. Mm. And like, I actually think like I would maybe apply that to something like the Solana ecosystem mm. today. Like I think people are having super negative, super emotional reactions to the Solana ecosystem because of like, yeah. you know, they were engaged yeah, with FTX so. or, you know, I think Multicoin's also getting a lot of crap yeah. and Multicoin's a big investor in Solana. Like when you have a really, really, really negative emotional reaction to, to something in crypto, it's usually a good sign that you should lean in a little deeper. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and investigate. That, I think so, so too. The last important, it's like, yeah. you know, there are certain things that, you know, it's always better if you can take more time to process new information and delay judgment. It's always kind of worked out well, not chasing stuff and just like taking your time. Crypto markets are generally like every time I feel like I'm missing out on something, I always kind of see it at that price. Maybe it takes six more months, maybe a year, maybe two. But it always pays dividends to actually do the work and be ready because crypto markets will really, really kind of test your conviction. And I think yeah. if you do the work, you're kind of fairly more calm in that environment. So, um, yeah, I think that's really it. Uh, the only thing that is really exciting coming up is Drive, Drive to Survive. I think it comes out next week, right? Yes. Nice. Hype. I got some travel Hype. coming. So, I did watch yeah. yeah. I watched the tennis. What did you think about? Not, not that. Yeah, it's like whatever. I didn't think it was yeah. that good. And entertainment's yeah. kind of. Um, all right, Santi, you 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 mentioned people are asking you about uh, people are asking you about um, if you're launching a fund. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one question to, to, oh, to Jesus end this. Christ. It is February second, 
2023, by the end of the year, December 31st, 2023, have you started to build something, whether that's a fund, a company, yes. something that I am built resemble a fund or RDS, I am building something right now. It's not a fund. Will it be, okay, will it be launched in 2023? What if I told you it's already launched, but no one knows about it? Like, well, it's launched. What, what if I told you it's already launched and everyone's using it, but no one knows that Santi's behind it? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually really cool. Uh, here's the thing, guys. We're going to have an episode of one of the... In this journey in crypto, I met some of the most remarkable people, which is one, the reason why I'm still here. Um, and one of those persons is going to come on the pod. And you're going to hear his story. And you're going to... I think it's going to be one of the best episodes we're going to have. And I won't actually hint at... Maybe at the end, we'll disclose that we're working together. But um, to me, it gives me a lot of confidence. And like, I just get talk about like a brand like LVMH. And when like, are you going to tell people what you're building? Here's the thing, like, you know, there's like not much to report on yet. So I'd rather like, you know, take All some right. time. But I promise it will come. Be before permissionless. Before permissionless. Should we do a big coming out party at Permissionless? You know, the Robinhood, the Robinhood founders announced their crypto wallet for Robinhood at Permissionless on stage. So if, if you know, if yeah. they can, and there's actually another huge company announcing some stuff at Permissionless this yeah. year. So maybe we get you up there with those. Yeah, no, I, I, I want to go to building. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't involve a fund. But uh, the reason I did this is because this person, right. I think, is an is a incredible operator. Someone that the crypto ecosystem has benefit, like will benefit a ton from because he has just so much knowledge and experience. So uh, I'm just really fortunate to be able to work with him. Cool. We'll leave it at that. Thanks for listening, folks. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care.